0: You know, sometimes you come up here and you realize that God has been prepping everybody's hearts in advance. We spoke a lot or heard a lot this morning from the book of John um, and specifically some, some things about Christ being the bread of life and about, although if you had continued through all the way to verse 63 from where we were at, um, that was one of the things I thought about titling my sermon Because even though today we're talking in the book of Luke, the passage we're talking about in Luke chapter 18 is really a matter of the heart. And it's a matter of the heart about what you think is the most important thing. I admit, last week, Matt Carter was up here and he was talking about science and all sorts of stuff. And the engineer in me was like, this is so great, right? I love that stuff. But today is really about where is your heart? Where is your focus? How do you value what the Lord has done versus how you value your life here on Earth? It's a matter of the heart. And all that emotional stuff, I don't do as well with that. So I'm going to be talking out of my own weakness today. I would love to be talking about all sorts of nuances of science, but to boil it all down, we have this amazing grace that we just sang about what's it worth to us so the way i kind of titled this earlier was what do you love it could also be who do you love if you think about peter it could be do you love me more than these or this is there anything and i'm 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 prepping you right i was thinking about When I give a technical presentation at work, right, we give an executive summary up front so people can think about the key point as you work through everything else. That way, when you're studying scripture and making sure I'm saying the right things, you know what I'm trying to say and you can look at scripture and you can say, no, Steve, uh, that's, that's a little bit off. My thesis point here is that there are so many things in our life here on earth. What should we be cognizant of? What may we need to remove from our lives because Jesus and what he did on the cross is worth so much more than what we may value right now? That's a really difficult question. Think about it. Every day you're like, I got to eat, right? I'm not saying to become um, someone who starves themselves to death or an ascetic of some sort. That's not what I'm getting at, right? There are times to fast. What do we do when we fast? We stop. And when I fast, every time I get hungry, I pray. And I get hungry a lot, so I end up praying a lot when I fast, right? Not everybody's able to fast. Some people have, have medical concerns with that. But just think about that. What in your life may be preventing you from giving everything to God? So let me start. I have a lot of build up to the start of our passage, so please forgive me. I know some of you are going to be like, oh my goodness, when is he going to start reading the first verse? But the thing is, Luke has actually given us a ton of information through the book to get us all the way to where we're going to be in chapter 18. And I promise I won't take five hours getting there. It might just be three. So we'll, we'll move through this quickly. I want to start with a personal story. The personal story is, what do you do when you think you've fallen in love? I know we use that word think, or I use the word think, but fall in love, right? You see somebody, you're interested, you want to get to know them. What do you do? Do you distance yourself? Do you try to figure out activities that they're not involved in? Do you, you know, scurry away? No, you do literally the opposite. When I met Kathy in Singapore, I was trying constantly to figure out ways I could be close to her without being awkward. (laughs) One of the things, I volunteered at a GE event. I did other things so that I could be around her, so I could get to know her, right? And we all know the end story now because she's my wife now. God blessed us that way. But the example here is I didn't let other distractions in Singapore stop me from trying to get closer to the person I was interested in. That's the illustration I'm trying to start with. Is there anything in your life that's stopping you or preventing you from getting closer to the one whom you should love? Jesus, God the Father. He gave us his whole word. Luke tells us about other examples. We start with a similar concept in Luke chapter 9. There's two people that come to Jesus. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 60. I'm summarizing a bit here. One wants to bury their father before following Jesus. The other wants to say goodbye to his family. Jesus is like, no, no. I am only here on earth for a limited time. Follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. That's pretty harsh if you think about it. Tradition would say that you should honor and care for your parents. What, what is this message that he was saying there? There is an urgency. If the man goes back to his parents, he may not actually follow the Lord. Okay? This, this is a key point that I want to bring up later as we cover the passage in 18. So we've already heard examples of this. We hear about Martha and Mary later in the book of, of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. What happens? Do you think that Martha was doing the wrong thing? She was trying to prepare. She was trying to be hospitable. She was trying to get everything perfect for Jesus, the anointed one. But she missed the big picture. In her goal to try to do her best as what she thought was the best, she missed that precious time with Jesus. Are there things in our life where we think we're doing the right thing for Jesus, but it's actually taking us away from that word? That's also hard because you think you're doing the right thing. You're following tradition. You're making sure that you're not causing problems. You're trying to bring peace. But the key here is, is there anything in your life, both good or bad, that's keeping you from getting to know more about Jesus? I also want to bring up another small point here. Uh, Maybe not that small. Jesus did not pick people Of the highest learning to follow him. You say, Steve, how do you know that? Well, I can tell you specifically in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, these were ordinary, uneducated men. Uneducated in the sense that they were not, you know, deeply educated in Scripture. And they took note, for these men had been with Jesus. Jesus' truth is true no matter what, even if you don't have every little nuance in there. So we don't get lost. And every little tiny detail when we're trying to follow Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with studying Scripture and trying to understand. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is don't let the little things stop you from moving forward in your walk with Jesus. These men were fishermen, and they were up against the Pharisees and Sadducees who had probably studied Scripture for over 20 years, and they were not shut up. In fact, if anything, the Pharisees couldn't stop them because they had been with Jesus for a much shorter amount of time compared to what those men had been studying. So let me re-ask, is there anything keeping you from listening to the word of God? Is there anything, and I obviously don't answer out loud. This is for introspective review. Is there anything stopping you? Is there anything that maybe you should give up? Or is there anything maybe you should start doing? Jesus had two things. Don't worry about those things and follow me. There is both stopping and action. We may need more action. We may need more stopping. A lot of churches focus on one or the other. I want you to understand there's both. And then once you think about what may be stopping you, I want you to think about how great really is that thing. Or if you need to start following, how great is the thing that you will be following? I'm going to give some examples of things that we put in our life. Um, So this would be the negative side of the example. So many of you have heard the expression, that's the best thing since sliced bread, right? And you may have used that for something in your life. And I decided I would look up a little bit about sliced bread because, you know, it breaks up the tension here. It gives you time to think a little bit. And also, I think it's kind of an interesting story. If you think about it, prior to 1928, there was no patent for a device that sliced bread. It was 1928, Otto Frederick, a roll welder, uh, invented and patented the bread slicer. Before that, bread was not put in plastic wrap because it had to maintain its moisture. It was just sold. It would have been what we would call artisan today. Um, They just made it. It lasted for just a short amount of time. And when you're cutting the things, what happens? Have you ever cut homemade bread? Not everybody here may have, but yeah. What happens? You get crumbs all over the place. Your slices aren't evenly sized. Could you imagine using a modern-day toaster without having uniform sliced bread? It's it's almost unfathomable. (laughs) Because when you're slicing, it gets all crooked and, you know, no matter what. So the expression... That's the best thing since sliced bread. How much more valuable is Jesus and what he did than sliced bread? And that was just 1928, right? So before 1928, there was not, none of this concept of, of pre-sliced packaged bread, at least in the United States. I didn't see any other patents or anything else for that. The other thing that we often fill our lives with, uh, there was an entertainment section in the Chicago Tribune uh, published April 19th, 2021, and it was looking at generational differences and what we fill our time with based on some surveys. The number one item for uh, millennial and older generations, which I'm not going to go into what years that represents, all those things are, are kind of crazy anyways, but basically think anybody who's probably around, what now, 25 or older, roughly, roughly right? TV, number one, 49% of people said that was their their big pastime. What's interesting is that the number one for what was considered Gen Z in this article was video games. So they actually do not watch nearly as much TV. They focus primarily on video gaming. And the number there was kind of interesting. Twenty-nine percent, the number one thing was video gaming. And then it was a slew of other things. It did not dwell on television. Now, the reason the article was put out is it's like, oh, advertisers are going to have a big issue, right? They've got to make us want something we don't already want. How do you reach out in order to make sure people are discontent to buy more things, right? But it's interesting to think, how much TV do we watch? How many video games do we play? When we use that's better than sliced bread, Jesus is way better than sliced bread. Right, And that leads us up to where the disciples were at. So now I want to read um, Luke chapter 18. And I'm just going to start with verse 28. Prior to this, a rich young man felt he understood the law and was following it. And Jesus said, all right, give everything to the poor and follow me. Remember, I said there's two parts. There's the give up. And then there's the action. And the ruler was sad. Why was he sad? What, shouldn't he be happy for eternal life? No. He was sad because he had to give up the comforts he had in this life to follow Jesus. So the disciples heard all this. And I love Peter. He's, he's so straightforward. Verse 28. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. All. All. What what, what do we mean by all here? Remember, fishermen, boats, he dropped it, he left. All of his earthly wealth was probably wrapped up in his trade. Think about those who work regularly. Before retirement, what are you doing? You're trying to build up for retirement. You're you're worried about, hey, how can I retire? What house am I going to live in? How am I going to provide for my family? What's going to happen? Disciples didn't have any of that. They'd given it up they'd left it all their jobs, their relatives i I don't know about immediate family I, Scripture's not real clear whether any of them were married or anything like that, but definitely extended family look look at Jesus even his hometown they didn't like him very much when he came back um, I shouldn't say it that way, but' we'll, it, it's definitely uh we'll cover that passage a little bit. They really had nothing. And we're reminded, earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out the twelve first. right? So this is Peter, this is the group. He told them to bring nothing. They had the clothes on their backs. So when Peter in verse 28 is talking about we've given up everything, he really means it. They were 100% reliant on what God was going to give them in order to do God's work. I admit I don't know if I could do that. That's That's been a big struggle. Could I really do that? Before I was married, before I had kids, I felt like maybe I could have. I think some of you know I wanted to actually go overseas and try to do missions work. I was willing to give up my job and to leave. Um, God blessed me in a different way. And I'm thankful for that. But now where I'm at, could I do that? I don't, I don't think so. And I don't think God's calling me to do that now. But that's what the disciples did. They understood that message and listening and being with Jesus was so important that they left everything else behind. And God did provide for them, right? They, they went to all the different towns. They had nothing. In fact, Jesus even told them what to do if the town rejected them. It's not like they gave up everything and then their life was going to be really happy. You know? Oh, yeah, you're going to go there. If somebody... You know, if somebody takes you in, eat. If nobody does and they reject you, you know, shake your feet and go on. Do you think they didn't have any money? They probably walked hungry. They gave up all of that. And Peter's probably thinking about all that when he makes this statement. Again, Jesus sent out the 72 disciples in Luke chapter 10. But this time he added a few more things to it because he knew it would be even tougher. He knew it would be tougher. In Luke chapter 10, what does he tell them to do? He's like, only stay in one place. If you find a person who's hospitable and will take you in, don't roam around, right? It's getting worse. People don't want to hear this message. How many times are we afraid to share the gospel? I can admit I've been afraid. I'm not proud of it at all. It's hard because you don't want to feel like you don't fit in. You don't want to be ostracized. You don't want to be separated. That's what these men did. These men had given it all up so they could hear Jesus speak. How does Jesus speak to us today? He speaks to us through scripture. You can read 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God breathed. The Holy Spirit is on the believer. You can read John 14.26. There are others who are saved and have spiritual gifts and talk to us. You can read about that in Romans chapter 12, 6 through 8. We have multiple ways that Jesus still speaks to us today, even if it's not him physically present in front of us like it was for the disciples. Are we listening? Are we listening? How much time do you give to listen? This Sunday morning your one time to hear? That's an area I struggle to. The day gets busy. I'm at work all day long. I'm with my family. It's hard to set aside that time. So Jesus responds to Peter. So this is Christ's words. This is verse 29, Luke chapter 18, verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife that one surprised me a little bit. I had to dwell on that for a while. Or brothers, or sisters, or parents, or children. For the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Wow. Now, the big picture here is obvious. God's kingdom and listening to God and doing what God wants is more important than just about anything else. Okay. But... I do want to think about this a little bit more. That passage is like, it's not carte blanche. Oh, if you think something's gonna stop you from, from God, you think something's gonna stop you from God, you just drop your whole family and go. You don't have any obligation. That I, I didn't agree with that, neither does Paul. Okay? So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verses 13 through 16, Paul gives guidance. Now his guidance The idea that he was trying to work through was, hey, you're married, your spouse is not a Christian, but you are, you're a new creation in Christ. The Christian should not just give up on their spouse and leave. They should stick it out. But if the non-Christian says, I've had enough of you, I don't agree with you, I'm leaving. Let them go. It's still tough, though. You, I'm sure those those two, that couple, would have been married, would have lived together. They, they would have children. In, and Paul even mentions, you know, for the sanctification of the children. I'm sure he was thinking of Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, where it's talking about godly offspring. Right? I'm sure that's what was in consideration for Paul. He was very familiar with the Old Testament. He's trying to meld all this together. And again, Paul. And that passage in 1 Corinthians says, I not the Lord. Right? This is not an ultimate command. But it gives us a guideline. Just because Christ says anyone who leaves home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents, doesn't mean that's what you should do. It might mean that's what you have to do to follow Christ. I did not have to do that. In fact... I have a pretty easy life being a Christian here in the United States. But not everybody does. I was trying to decide what to share here about not being so easy. Um, And uh, the thing that first came to mind was a case in 2007. There was a woman who converted to Christianity. She was in Malaysia. She's native Malay. And then the Malaysian Constitution says if you're native Malay, you're born as as a Muslim, period. There's just no question about it. Now they do have a methodology to change your ID card uh, referencing what your religion is. Um, You have to go to a Sharia law court and claim that you are an apostate um, because you no longer believe in God. Or you, you are apostate against God. I shouldn't say you don't believe in God, but you, you, you are going against God's will. And she wouldn't do that. She tried to handle it through the federal courts to say that she was a Christian, and that's where her heart was, and that she was not defying God. The federal court said, nope, that's not our, that, that's not our jurisdiction. You have to go to Sharia court. You have to, you, have, you have to go to the religious court in order to get that changed. You can't update your ID card. The further complication is she wanted to marry a Christian man. She wasn't allowed by law to marry a Christian man because she had her ID card indicating that she was Muslim. In the end, she lost all of her cases, all of her appeals. She's currently in hiding. Um, She did decide to marry that Christian man. Nobody knows exactly where she's at now, nor would they publish it. She did decide to have children. If she was ever caught the fact that she had children with a Christian man who she wasn't supposed to marry in the first place, Um, She would be considered an adulteress. Um, She could be severely punished. Um, The children would be considered uh, because they are related uh, as a as an ethnic Malay. um, They would be considered Islamic and and because she the husband is not from Islam, the children could be taken away. Um, It's a it's a very sad story of a situation that I can't even imagine. If anybody would like to look up that, there's a legal brief on it online uh, from the company, the lawyer group that actually tried to support uh, this young woman. Um, And I apologize, I don't have it directly in front of me here, but I will happily give you that. I always like to make sure I have my sources and I I can repeat them. That's something I've never had to deal with, and hopefully none of you have had to deal with. But think about all the other cultures out there that do not have Jesus involved in their culture. What if you come from a culture where there is a lot of a lot of small G gods and it's built into the culture? You accept Jesus. There's only one true God. And everybody looks at you like, well, why aren't you celebrating with us? This is our happiest time of the year. And and you're not you're not burning incense. You're not you're not participating. Are, Are you are you still one of us? Think about those who were Jewish and have converted Right? They know the truth. They don't need to sacrifice anymore. Jesus did it. What would happen? Are, are they, you know, all the things that can happen in their family? Are you really still one of us? Why aren't you practicing the way that we practice? I've never had to face that, and I'm glad, but it's a big issue. I don't know how well I would face that. I, that's just the honest truth. But you know what? That amazing grace eternal life is worth more than that suffering here on earth. Again, it's hard for me to fathom that, right? Can any of us grasp eternity? If you can, I'd be amazed, because I sure can't. It gives me a headache. Just try to think about an endless time. The other example I found was, um, there. Uh, th- this was actually from the New York Times. I think the New York Times... I don't want to say that they exaggerated it, but I'm sure they focused on specific examples and and really elevated them, but it still shows an aspect of what's happening in the world. And this is a quote directly from the New York Times, uh, December 2021 article. This is specific to um, some things that had happened in northern India and some churches that had been I don't don't know what the right word would be. Definitely the congregation was abused and and not really supported by the police there. So this is a quote from the court that was overseeing some of it. To many Hindu extremists, the attacks are justified, a means of preventing religious conversions. To them, the possibility that some Indians, even a relatively small number, would reject Hinduism for Christianity is a threat to their dream of turning India into a pure Hindu nation. Many Christians have become frightened that they, uh, so frightened that they try to pass as Hindu to protect themselves. So again, that's December 2021, New York Times. You can look that up. The the article's fuller, but again, I'm not saying that's across all of India. That, That could be just a very small location, right? But it's real. There are people who really have to give up everything in order to become a Christian. And not only do they have to leave everybody they know, they may not even be able to make a living. People may ostracize them. Even in the United States, there's the cake shop in Colorado that refused to make a specialty cake for a couple that wanted a homosexual marriage. They basically won their court case that said that that couple could have bought anything off the shelf, but the right of expression was up to the cake, uh, cake shop. Do you think they get the same level of business they did before? I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But we still see some aspects of persecution when you stand up for what you believe here in the States. It's not just other countries. I use those other countries because the examples are a bit more extreme because of the society and the majority position. But it still happens here. And it's hard. But it's something that we have to consider ourselves. Is there anything holding us back? what do we need to do to follow? The next few passages here, in my mind, it's like a transition here. And this transition, the way that I see this, is Jesus telling the disciples his example of what he's willing to give up for us. So starting now in verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples, verse 34, did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. You've just seen a man do tons of miracles in front of you. He has done so much. And now you're saying the Gentiles, not, not even the religious elite, but the Gentiles are the ones who are going to do all these things to him when they've been kind of ignoring him up to this point. And we're going to go into Jerusalem and all this is going to happen. Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. And I admit, there's a whole thing we could talk about with regards to that. But when you think about what the disciples went through, giving up everything, Jesus gave up his life. We literally, at the earlier service, at the Lord's Supper service, went into Romans chapter 5. While well, we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Before we even decided to follow him. Before we even tried. He did that for us. I was trying to put myself in the disciples' place. And here's why. Sometimes I don't know what I should do. Right? Sometimes we want to act like Peter. Never, Lord. No, that won't happen. Get away from me, Satan. I mean, that's pretty strong words. When are there times in my life where I think I'm doing the right thing, but I'm not actually listening to Scripture? Sometimes I need outside help. We can't do this Christian walk by ourselves. right? That's why we gather as a body. Because sometimes people will notice things. Remember, I mentioned spiritual gifts. Other people, they help you. On that path. The Holy Spirit will prompt you. If you stop listening to the Holy Spirit, then there's definitely something wrong. (laughs) Right? We can grieve the Holy Spirit. He can keep trying to talk to you, and you can harden your heart against Him. If you've hardened your heart, we need to take a big step back and think about what happened. Is there anything in my life that I need to reconsider? Things that I'm doing that don't line up, I think are good, but don't line up. Jesus gave the Pharisees a hard time because of tradition one of their traditions was if somebody said that they were going to give something to the temple that money was now reserved for the temple and even if a person's family got in trouble they couldn't give any money because that was supposed to go to the church and god's like you don't even honor your mother and father through that tradition that's a tradition nowhere in scripture does it say that but you hold them to this rule that doesn't even match what scripture says Is there something like that in your life or my life? Something that we're holding on to from a tradition standpoint that we think is a good thing? We understand the big picture, but maybe the nuances of it are preventing us from following what God wants. Where is our heart when we follow that tradition? Is it Ananias and Sapphira? Are we trying to give money to the church and say we gave all the money and we really didn't because we want to look good? Nowhere in Scripture did it say they had to give all their money, nowhere people around them were, and what did they do? Oh, we want to look like they do. We want to show how great we are like, let's let 's say we 're going to sell this land, so we sold this land, and we 're going to say we gave all the money, but they didn 't they didn 't did they? It was for show it was for show, part of it was for show. they did give some of the money, but what were they told? You could have just said you gave part of the money. It was your money. You gave to the church, that's great. Right? It was, it was their heart condition. Again, are there any traditions or anything that we're holding on to where our heart condition is not quite right? Are we showing how we're loving Jesus with what we're doing? Or are we showing how we're matching everyone's expectations? That's really hard, because we want to match other people's expectations. We want affirmation. Jesus knew what was going to happen. It was no surprise for him. He even told the disciples. They couldn't fathom it, but he told them. And it shows how far Jesus was willing to go for us. He probably died one of the worst possible ways you could think of that the Romans had devised. Actually, a lot of the disciples ended up dying and becoming martyrs too. Jesus showed them the way. I don't know that I could be a martyr either, but I would like to think that if God called me for that, the Holy Spirit would help me through it. Jesus led by example. He didn't avoid suffering. He didn't avoid conflict. For the most part, there were times when people were trying to stone him to death and he kinda of walked through them. I assume that was somewhat supernatural. But at the time it wasn't right yet. He allowed himself to die. I think that really really puzzled me for a while. Why did he suffer? He, he could call himself back to life. He didn't have to let himself be dead for three days. He was self-sufficient. But he let himself suffer. Why? Because he led by example. He was a propitiation for our sins. He was an example and a punishment. He took that punishment. Jesus gave up heaven, was abused by people, and all the time he loved us. In return, when you think about what he did for us, do you feel you love him? This is not a call to make you feel bad. It's a call to change. When we think about all the things God's done for us, are we responding in kind? Are we trying to get closer? Are we giving up the things that are keeping us down and following him? Matt's message last week, had a strong portion of salvation in it. The gospel was definitely preached. Today I'm talking to those who are saved. If you're not saved, that's the start, understanding Jesus' love. But if you are saved and you've experienced Jesus' love, what's your response? And I would encourage all of us, no matter what's happened before, our sins have been forgiven. Christ died for us. We can move forward on a new path. We can examine our lives, and we can do even better than we have. And some of you have been doing a great job longer than I have. But there's always room for improvement. Nothing else. I've learned that through engineering. There's always room for improvement. Even if it seems extreme, we should try to get rid of the things that hold us back. Uh, Matthew 5.30, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. I remember the first time I read that, I'm like, what? (laughs) But better to go without a hand than eternity in hell. So that's the give-up side. The follow side. The follow side is what Jesus told the disciples. How much more is it worth to follow me than these things here on earth? How many more times more an eternity that's what I had for us today. I'm going to close this in prayer. Sorry, I feel like I ended more somber than I wanted it to be. I actually want this to be a call for love and for action towards God because of what he did for us. Let me close this in prayer. Dear God, we know there are so many people hurting and suffering. Father, both physically and mentally. Father, we know that there are people around the world who want to follow you And they're suffering because of that. Father, we know that you've told us that following you will have suffering. There will be things that will happen. But Father, through all of that, I pray that we would remember what you did for us. The suffering servant. I pray, Father, that you would help us respond in our heart. Father, that we would follow you with our heart, soul, and mind. And let us not forget our neighbor, Father, who also needs love, regardless if they're the Samaritan, um, the enemy, whatever the case may be. You love them all, God. I just pray that you'd uh, you'd help us as a congregation to grow stronger together, Father, to encourage one another, and to utilize our spiritual gifts to grow the body and outside of the body and into our, our community, Father. I just pray these things in your name. Amen.